to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And friends, that is what we're going to be looking at tonight and over the next three months is how do we rightly handle the word of truth? This amazing message that God has given to us. How do we rightly handle it? And what does that look like? I hope it'll help you in your personal devotions as you read God's word. I hope the principles we talk about tonight and in the months, next three months will help you let the scripture come alive to you and see things you've never seen and understand it in new and deeper ways. But I hope it'll also help you as you talk about the scriptures. Whether that's in a formal teaching role or not, we all have opportunities to talk about the scriptures, whether it's with our friends, our neighbor, our family members. And my prayer is that this will not only help your devotional life, but this will help you be equipped to better talk about the Word of God with others. So where are we going with it? Look at this, this little sheet right here, the one turned sideways. This is our schedule for the next three months, so you know where we're going on Wednesday nights. Tonight we're addressing three questions. What do we believe about the Bible? Why do we have different Bible translations? Why do they read different? And why even bother interpreting the Bible? So we're looking at some foundational things tonight. Next week is pretty simple. We're going to talk about what we do not do in Bible interpretation and what we do. And we're going to kind of contrast that so we have kind of a framework for how we approach the Scripture. The next week we're going to look at understanding cultural context because we all have a lens to which we see Scripture. Scripture was written in a particular time in a particular culture, and we're in a different culture. And so there's a lens that we look at it through. And how does that influence our ability to understand it? We'll take a break February 1, but we'll be here, and it's Go Family Night. All the kids who just saw leaves, you go to their Go program, will come back in. They're going to sing for us, dance for us, do all the stuff they do down there, and we get to participate with them to bring the body together. So I hope you'll come that night. And then starting February 8th, we're going to spend about the next six weeks looking at genres of Scripture. Because how we interpret historical narrative is different than how we interpret the Psalms and poetry. It's very different than how we inter- interpret Proverbs or prophecies or parables or epistles. We look at those each week, take, a, take off for spring break, come back and we're talk about understanding special forms of speech and language. What's the role of hyperbole, of exaggeration, of images and stuff like that? And then we'll finish up with practical study help. And then the last week, you can put CJ and I on the spot and it's a Q&A that night. And you can ask us anything we talked about from the study or anything else that you want to ask about. And we'll talk more about that as we get there. But tonight, we have three questions to address in kind of our foundational week of how do we understand the Bible. And you see those on your sheet here. What, what do we believe about the Bible? Why do translations read differently? Why is it important to know how to interpret the Bible? And so let's start, jump right into those. So the first one here is what do we believe about the Bible? And guys, come in, there's handouts if you need a copy of them that will have some of the notes on it for you. Um, what do we believe about the Bible? Let's let Scripture answer that question. Instead of just talking about it, let's let Scripture answer it. But first of all, before we get to that, the question is, what is the Bible? Anyone want to take a stab at that? What, what is the Bible? Infallible Word of God or something else? The Autobiography of the Lord. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. What else is, what, how else would you describe the Bible? Your non-believing neighbor says, what is the Bible? What do you tell them? Instruction book? Best selling book ever, yeah. Truth, yeah. A lot of things that go into it. I mean, it's something that we look at every day. It can be hard to describe it succinctly of what it is. Well, let's let the Bible help answer that question of, of what is it. And so the first passage I want us to look at, and I put it on your sheet because we're going to look at a lot of passages tonight, is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Let's follow along as I read. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So 
And friends, what is the Bible? Well, it starts to answer that for us here in Second Peter chapter 1. Just a little context here in verse 19. It talks about the prophetic word that we have and tells us to pay attention to it until the day dawns, until the morning star rising heart, until the day that Christ returns. We're supposed to pay attention to this word. Why do we not have to pay attention to, to the written word when Christ returns? Because we see the living word face to face. Until we see the living word, Christ himself, what we kind of alluded to last week as we began, John, and we'll get to a lot more in depth this Sunday. Until we see Christ face to face, we look at the written word to help us understand the living word of God, God, Jesus himself, who we will see face to face one day. Because we won't need the written word then because we'll see him as he is face to face. But verse 21 is what really helps us understand what the Bible is. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through men. Ultimately, God is the author of Scripture. But he worked through the human writers to give us the Scripture. And he didn't override their personalities in doing that. So when you read the Bible and you look at Peter's writings versus Paul's writings, they read different. I mean, some of that gets lost in our English translation, but if you go back into the Greek and look, and when I took Greek in seminary a long, long time ago, and we'd try to translate things out of Paul's writings, you know, Paul was very well educated. Everything was like perfectly grammatically proper. Everything followed all the rules exactly like the Greek grammar was supposed to. You get into Peter's writing, you're like, you, you can't do that, Peter. It doesn't, that's not a grammatical construct, you know. But his writings were different because he was not as educated as Paul was. You can see a difference in that. God didn't override their personalities, but he worked through them as the men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, you had human authors, but God was the one who was the ultimate author of that. So what does that lead us to? What we believe about the Bible is something we call the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Because God is the author, because God is sovereign, because God is over all, He is the one who has the authority over all things, and His Word therefore has authority. All the words in Scripture are God's words. If we, to believe them is to believe God. To not believe them is to not believe God. If God spoke, they're his words, and if we believe them, we're believing God. To not believe them is to not believe God. But what else do we learn about the Bible according to the Scripture itself? So turn to the next, the next page. We come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This word breathed out by God is a Greek word, theopneustos, and it's where we get the idea of inspiration. You know, if you think about it when you talk, you hold your hand in front of your mouth, you feel the breath coming out. That's the idea that the words of God or the scriptures are breathed out by God. The idea of inspiration comes from that. And so notice, though, particularly that what is inspired is the scripture. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out, is inspired by God. This is important when we get into like translation philosophy. It's not that the authors are what are inspired, and it's not that the readers are what are inspired, what is inspired is the word of God given to us, the writings, the graphe. That is what is inspired in the scripture. And that's going to be important when we get into translation philosophy. And how much of these writings are inspired? What's that very first word of 2 Timothy 3? All. Every single one of them. Just the ones that talk about faith? No. All of them. Everything in God's word from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is inspired. It is breathed out. It's the breath of God, the words of God given to his people. 
if you want the big term we use for inspiration on this, is, I put it there, you know, it says verbal plenary inspiration. So if you want to make your, your coworkers turn their head and go, what are you talking about? You can use that word tomorrow. Verbal, the words being spoken. Plenary, and if you ever go for your work to workshops and conferences, if you go to a conference, you have your breakout sessions, but then what's the big session when everyone's together? Plenary session. Plenary means all, everyone together. So verbal plenary inspiration, all of the words of the Bible. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, in the original language, was inspired, was breathed out by God. And if we believe that leads to the next point, and that's the inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy means no error. The Scripture does not affirm anything contrary to fact that is true. And friends, that has to be. If the Scripture is breathed out by God, if it's God's very words to us, then it has to be true because God's nature is true and is truth. We get into this starting in May in the attributes of God. We look at what God's characteristics are. But when you look at Scripture, God cannot lie. I mean, Numbers 23, 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie. God only speaks truth because that's his nature. He can only speak truth. God cannot lie because of his nature. And so, therefore, everything that God says has to be true. Therefore, everything that God has breathed out to us in the Scriptures is inerrant, has no error. Why were these things given to us? Why were these inspired and errant words given to us back in 2 Timothy 3.16? Notice that they're profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. These are things that God gave us for our teaching, for our correction. It was given for our discipleship. It was given for our discipline. It was done for our good so that we might know God and walk with him. And why did he give it even more fully? Now look at the next scripture on your handout, 2 Timothy 3.17. I've intentionally left a word off because I'm going to read it wrong here for you. So listen up here and to make a point here. So 2 Timothy 3.16, so it's all scriptures read out by God. It's profit for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for some good works. What are, what's wrong there? Every good work. And notice what it's not either, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work in the church or in ministry. There's no footnote there. It's every good work. It's what the Word of God equips us to do. That's what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. That means that Scripture contains all the words that God intends for His people to have in that point of redemptive history. And today, with the Scripture complete, the canon of Scripture in our hands, we have every word of God that we need that he intends for us to have there. And so everything we need has been given to us by the Lord. Scripture is sufficient. Well, one more passage related to what the, the Bible is and what we understand to be is Psalm chapter 19. This is a beautiful text, and let's start in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And so notice what the scripture does to us. It revives our soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It's pure and enlightens our eyes. It endures forever. All these things. So this helps us answer the question. Do you have to have specialized training to be able to understand the Bible? No. Do you have to go to Bible college to be able to understand the Bible? No. Do you have to go to seminary to understand the Bible? No. Do you have to be a pastor to understand the Bible? No. The Bible is what we call in this term the clarity of Scripture. And the clarity of Scripture, I've put it there. Wayne Grudem is a theologian, and 
just to, I highly commend some of this stuff to you, but he says in there, the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read, seeking God's help and being willing to follow. So all of Scripture can be understood by us. Now, that does not mean that there are not hard things in there. There are hard things to understand in Scripture. In fact, if you want a verse full of hope, it's not in your handout, but Second Peter chapter 3 Verse 15 and 16. In 2 Peter 3, Peter writes, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. And friends, if Peter, who's writing Scripture, in inspired Scripture, tells us there's things in these other books that are hard to understand, that should give us some hope, too. And we get the passage going, I don't quite get how that works. So this doesn't, clarity of Scripture does not mean it's, they're not hard things to understand, but it means as we seek and we study, God helps us understand it, and we can get the message of the Bible. We don't have to have special training and particularly, one verse that helps explain this is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I've left some words out because I'm going to read it to you wrong first, okay? So listen for what's wrong here. And these ideas that I command to you shall be on your heart. Your pastors shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of what the scholars say when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That's not what the scripture says, is it? And these words... The verbal plenary, these words, these, the, the words of Scripture that I communicate shall be on your heart. And who shall teach them to your children? You. Not the scholar, not the pastor, not the seminary um, theologian. You are to teach them to your children. The assumption of that is that you are able to. The Scripture is clear enough that you can sit down with the Scriptures and explain them to your child so they come to understand who God is. And you shall talk of them them being the scriptures. You don't have to talk about what the scholars said about it. God has enabled you as a follower of Christ with the Holy Spirit in you to look at the word of God and understand it and be able to communicate that whether it's with your co-worker, your friends at school, or your children. And so the principle that comes out of that is those two bold points there on your handout. Any believer who seeks God and studies the Bible can understand and can explain its meaning. So friends, I want that to sink in and give you hope. When your friend asks you a question, you don't have to be like, oh, let me go see what Pastor Grady says. You have the Word of God. I mean, I always welcome your questions. You know, I enjoy that. But you have the Word of God, and God gives you clarity of understanding to be able to talk about it with your friends. If your parents and your child ask you a question, you're not like, well, let me go see what theologian Wayne Grudem said about that text. You can, it's not bad to do that, but God has given clarity of Scripture where you can look at it and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to it and understand that. But with that comes, with that hope, that promise comes an expectation. That's the next point there. God expects his people to know and to be able to talk about his word. I think we miss that sometimes. God expects us to know the word of God and to be able to talk about it. Think, about, think back to the Gospels. We'll get some of this in John as we start working through it this year. When people would come to Jesus... And ask him a question. One of the first things he'd be let, he would say is, have you not read? Or have you not heard? Something along those lines. And then he'd say, have you not pondered these philosophical implications? It was, he points them back to the scripture. Have you not heard? Have you not read? The assumption is, well, surely you've read this. You're talking about it. Have you not read? But also, we see this in other places. If you think about the epistles, the letters in the New Testament that we'll get to in a few weeks. Were those written to the pastors of the churches, or were those written to the congregations? Those were written to the congregations. The assumption of that is everyone who, gets, who lives in Corinth and gets a letter to, to the Corinthians, they don't need their pastor going to be like, okay, well, now Paul in verse 1 is meaning this. The assumption is everyone in the congregation can read it and understand it. 
when the people in Ephesus get a letter or when the people get it in, in, in Philippi, the assumption is they can read it and they can understand it. And so the scriptures have clarity to them to where we can understand it. Now, how do we put all these ideas together? We talk about the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity. I mean, these are all big ideas. The best summary I've ever found, this comes from a guy by the name of Vody Bauckham. Any of you familiar with Vody Bauckham and heard him? He is, a, he is a very gifted pastor and just love hearing the brother when, he, when I've heard him teach before. But Vody Bauckham said this. He actually preached this at a Southern Baptist Convention meeting some years ago. And he simply said, you know, when we get asked, why do you believe the Bible? Most of us have a blank look on our face. If we had an atheist friend say, why do you believe the Bible? If we had a Hindu neighbor say, why do you believe the Bible? We're going to be like, uh. And the best answer most of us can muster up is, well, uh, it works for me. He's like, that's an awful answer. Because the, the Buddhist in Thailand can be like, well, my Buddhism works for my grandmother. What's wrong with that? Pragmatism doesn't convince people. So he says, how do we understand what the Bible is and why we believe it? And he had this amazing definition that's on your handout for you. He says the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports the supernatural events or the fulfillment of specific prophecies, and it claims that his writings are of divine and not human origin. Boom. Like, there you go. There's why I believe the Bible. That'll preach right there. The Bible is a reliable collection of historic documents. We, we referred to this even as we started the Gospel of John. It was written by eyewitnesses. But here's what's so important about this. It was written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Friends, this wasn't like some guy got a vision and wrote them on some tablets and no one knows what happened. This is a faith that was written down for us when the, by the eyewitnesses who saw it in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And trust me, a lot of those eyewitnesses did not want this to be true. There were lots of people who hated Jesus, who hated the message of the gospel, and they tried to disprove it. When we look back through antiquity, they couldn't disprove it by saying it never happened. Because it was written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. You have to find other grounds to dismiss it because it's historical. You look at the beginning of Luke and he wrote an orderly account of excellent Theophilus. It was historical. You look at John. It was historical. It was eyewitness accounts in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. But even beyond that, it reports to us supernatural events. The Bible is full of stories. We'll get into these in John. Miracle after miracle that science cannot explain. But they, again, they were done in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It's not like you look back at history and people be like, no, the feeding of 5,000 never really happened. You know, the people who tried to disprove Christianity couldn't disprove it on the grounds of this is a lie, this is a farce, because there were eyewitnesses who wrote it, and it was in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And so these supernatural events give testimony to what God is doing. But then ultimately, the reason we start today with what does the Bible let the Scripture answer it, because the writings themselves claim to be of divine and not human origin. Friends, if nothing else, the most powerful thing of why we believe the Bible is because the Bible tells us where to believe it. That is our authority. It's not because it works or because it makes me feel good. We go to the Bible because the Bible says this is the breath of God. These are the words of God that is profitable for you. And so we look to Scripture because it itself claims to be divine and not human origin. So there is a very, very fast summary of why of what we understand the Bible to be. Authority, sufficiency, clarity, inspiration, inerrancy, these things. Again, that's just surface level. We, we could spend a night on each one of those five things, trying to unpack that and show you from Scripture all those things. But surface level, those are five important things that foundation. If we're going to talk about for the next three months how to interpret the Bible, that's the foundation we're working from. 
It is authoritative because it comes from God. It is the inspired words of God. Every, every word in there is inspired from God. It's inerrant. There's no error in it. It is clear. We can understand it. And it's sufficient for everything that we need to know God and to know how to relate to him and to relate to one and how to live. So that leads to the question. If the scriptures are clear and the scriptures are able to be understood, why do we have so many different translations of it? And if you've ever wrestled with that, or any, do any of you have multiple translations? You read out of one, and you read out of one, and you're going, like, that sounds really different. You, that, that true for any of you guys? You read out of the multiple translations. Well, here's why. The Bible was written not in English. So the King James was not the original Bible. And just make, make sure we're all clear on that one there. That the Bible was, was written in Greek and in Hebrew. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek. And there's some Aramaic expressions mixed into it. And so for us, we can go back and read Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and the Aramaic quotes in it. But most of us don't speak Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. So translators translate it for us into English for us, but it gets translated into languages all over the world. It is the best-selling book across the world. It gets translated for us. And translators have to look at a word and go, now how do we render that in the new language? And it's not just as simple as what word is it. Because, for example, and, we, and I mentioned this a while back, I think during the Advent when we were talking about the candle of love. English is not a very specific language. Greek is. And so I say, well, I love chocolate. And I, like Auburn, I love Auburn football. And I love my kids. And I love my wife. And I love God. The fact that I can say I love football, chocolate, and my wife and God using the same word, there's just a lack of precision there in that, right? In the Greek, that's distinguished. You have an agape love between God and people. You have a phileo love, a friendship love. You have an eros love, an erotic love between husband and wife. You have all these different words of love. And so when the translators get to it and you, you have a I phileo you, you know, I love you as a brother, well, we're stuck with the English word love. Well, God loves you. Well, he, he agapes you, but we're stuck with love. You know, our language is not as precise. And so something gets lost a little bit in that. So translators try to find ways to communicate that. Now, when you approach translation, there's two radically different approaches to translation. And I put those in your handout because this is going to impact why some of your Bibles read so differently. One type of translation is called formal equivalence. So here again, here, I'm throwing you out some big words for the night so you go have some fun at lunch with your coworkers tomorrow, right? Formal equivalent translation. This is more commonly on the street called a word-for-word translation. The, the opposite side of that is called a dynamic equivalent or dynamic equivalence type Translation, and we typically call that a thought for thought translation. Now, at a fundamental level, and this is, a, and Julia says this is a soapbox issue of mine, so I'm going to try to spare you getting on my soapbox tonight, okay? So y'all can rein me in, Carmen, rein me in if I start going too long on this one here. I've got, I've got a whole like 20 page paper on this that I wrote in seminary if you want to read more on this one sometime. I'll spare you there. They're radically different understandings of how you translate on this. Before the 1970s, Everything that was translated, scripture or non-scripture, was what we would call a formal equivalence. The idea of a dynamic equivalent, thought for thought, is, is about 40 years old. Nothing before 1970 could even be fathomed being translated in a dynamic equivalent way. Now, what do I mean in the difference of this? They define accuracy in very different ways. So if you ask a dynamic translator, you ask a formal translator... Is your translation accurate? Oh, definitely, definitely, yes. We have, we have a very accurate translation. In fact, almost every Bible you open, no matter which end of the spectrum it's on, the opening pages will have a thing about how accurate it is. Now, they're using the same dictionary, or the same words, but using different dictionaries to define it. A formal equivalent translator tr- defines accuracy by faithfully rendering every word from that Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into a new word in Greek, in, in, into our English language here. 
And so it may take two English words to translate the one Greek word, or perhaps those three Greek words can be translated into the one English word, but they make sure that every word that was originally in the Bible in Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic is translated, is rendered in some way into, the, into, the, into our new language, into English for us in this room. Now, a dynamic equivalent translator has a different idea. They define accuracy by you feeling the same feeling that the original hearers felt when they heard it too. Okay? So now, do you see kind of how they're going to add some interpretation to that? You, you can leave words out. It can be Greek and Hebrew words that you don't bring to the new translation. You can add words that are not part of the Greek and Hebrew to the new translation if it creates the same, what they call, reader response. And so, again, this was developed in the 1970s. Well, the guy who developed it is a guy by the name of Eugene Nida. He did not develop because he was trying to dis, you know, be disparaging to the Word of God. He was a missionary. And he was broken over the lostness of the world. He was broken over the parts of the world where there were no missionaries, no Bible scholars, no pastors to come in and teach the Bible. And there are things in the Bible hard to understand. And so he was like, what if I take the Bible and as I'm translating it, simplify it, explain it a little bit, take the thought of the original and translate to the thoughts of the new. Instead of getting so worried about the specific words, let's translate the thoughts of the original and how the readers would have felt about it. And let's translate that thought into a new language so the readers feel the same thing. And so Eugene United developed a thought-for-thought dynamic translation, never intended to be the primary study Bible of Christians. It was to be a missionary tool to help lost people understand the Bible. They didn't have teachers, missionaries, pastors there to do it until such pastors, missionaries, teachers could get in there and help them understand the Word of God. So that's what Eugene United envisioned this to be. But then it's people like, ooh, I like the way this reads. And before long, it just exploded in the 70s with the NIV. The NIV was one of the, the, the first early dynamic translations published in English. And why did people run to it? Because it made more sense to them. It seemed simpler. It was easier to read. And in fact, it was. The, the New American Standard Bible is a 12th grade reading level. The NIV is a 7th grade reading level. And so, you know, it, it's easier to read. It's easier to memorize. And things that are like, well, that didn't make sense. They make sense now because, again, the, the, the translators add some interpretation to it to help make sense of it. And so realize that accuracy is defined very differently. So I'm not saying that those, those are bad translations if they're on the dynamic side, but just realize what they are and realize the limitation of that. You don't go do a word study in the NIV. You can do one in the ESV and the New American Standard knowing the, the language translation limitations because of the different philosophies of it. So the, if you look at there's a, there's a chart in your little handout there as far as where Bibles fall on the spectrum. The most formal equivalent translation is the New American Standard. Any of you NASB readers? Okay, a few of you NASB readers. Good. It is the most accurate, as I define accuracy, tr- you know, faithfulness coming over of, of every word being rendered, of all the English translations. You NASB readers, if they have to add a word for clarity, what do they do to it in the NASB? They put it in italics. So when you're reading the NASB and you see a word put in, you're like, oh, the word people wasn't in there. They put that in there so I know who they're saying. So they actually go to the extreme of putting it in italics. It's, it's an amazing translation. It kind of comes across rigid, though, and despite – so NASB was published after the NIV is kind of a counter to it. So you can almost – you almost have these different schools of thought. NIV becomes real popular. They're like, this isn't literal enough. Boom, so here's the NASB. NASB never could get a lot of market share off of that because it was 12th grade reading level. And a lot of people don't read it at the 12th grade reading level, and it seemed – word structure seemed hard and all that. So, the, again, the dynamic translations like the NIV carried on, you know, as popularity. And along comes what I use, the English Standard Version. I'm trying to get off my soapbox here, but the reason why I use that is because it uses a word-for-word translation philosophy, a formal equivalent philosophy. 
it has, but, but then when they look at the rigidity of it, they brought in some language cards to kind of help redo word order and stuff to make it flow better. And so it comes in about a 10th grade reading level and becomes easier to read. And so ESV has the potential now to gain more market share because a lot of people switch to it because of that accuracy thing. So uh, enough said for that. So you see your chart there on where things fall. King James, New King James, ESV, all those are going to be formal equivalents. Your NIV is in the middle. The one HCSB, that's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. That's the official Lifeway Bible, if you will. I, I kind of just, I, know, I affectionately named that the Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible, the HCSB, because it's the one that the Southern Baptists themselves published. It's somewhere in the middle. They try to do a formal, if you read the introduction of it, they try to do a formal equivalent, and when it becomes too awkward, they switch to dynamic. And then they go back to formal. And they, so you don't know what you're getting in there. If you've got NIV, you know you're getting dynamic. If you're in the, the New American Standard, you know you've got formal. If you're in Holman Christian Standard, take your best guess. It's a good translation, though, but just, again, know, know the limitations of that. And, again, just a, a practical example for you of, of how, this, how this works and, and, the, and the, how the translation philosophies change things. And the NIV was, the, was one of the early ones of the Bible translations that were dynamic. Well, the challenge is if you define accuracy by reader response, what's happening to our culture constantly? It's changing. And so you have to keep changing it to be able to keep up with the changing culture where people have the same feeling that you thought that Paul's readers had a long time ago. And so back in the late 90s, they actually published a different version of NIV. They published it in Europe. It did not make it here. It's called the NIVI, the Inclusive Language NIV, a Bible for Feminists. And the NIV translators dropped all the masculine pronouns and the things were false as brothers and stuff. They got rid of that because that was offensive in the changing culture and it, in their mind obscured the meaning. And people were like, well, no, that we can't do this. The scripture. Well, I guess we can. It's, it's how you define accuracy. That was just a natural thing. Try to publish here, too much outcry. So they dropped it. Well, it's come around 2000. They republished it, and it's called the TNIV, the Today's New International Version. And so TNIV was NIVI. Some changes made, but repackaged it. But here's just one scripture. You go into the pastoral epistle in the Timothy, and you have a text where it's giving qualifications for deacons. I read it up here from the pulpit. We had our deacon ordination about a month ago. And in there, there's a word that it's a confusing passage. After you get through the deacon, it says, likewise, the women are to be worthy of respect, and it goes on to outline their qualifications. The Greek word literally just says women. It's where they can go wife or women in the Greek. When we get to English, what do you do with that? Well, the TNV translators said, well, it's obvious what the readers understood, so they actually translate that, likewise, the women who serve as deacons are to be. And people are like, you can't add to the Scripture. Like, we're not adding Scripture. We're just explaining the meaning. And so, again, that's just the natural flow of it. Well, that got real controversial. Dobbs and a bunch of other people opposed the TNIV, and you know, I did some of the work on some of that project of some of the stuff they were doing with that, and so it got real controversial. So they, they, they eventually stopped that. That was going to replace the NIV, and so they, 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 they withdrew it. They quit publishing it, and then along comes in 2011 the new NIV. If you buy a new, an NIV today and compare it to the NIV you had 10 years ago, it's totally different. They took the TNIV and they repackaged it as the NIV now. And they, complete, and they quit publishing the TNIV. Well, why? You know, well, some people are like, this is crazy. You're changing the, the words. Well, in their mind, again, you can read the TNIV or the NIV and you can get the gospel. So I'm not trying to, to bash a translation here, but just get to where this is going. If you define accuracy by a cultural response to it as the culture changes, you have to keep adapting it. And so interesting, like the ESV, they came under some controversy this year because they said, we're locking our translations and never changing again. And they, and they made a statement about two months ago they were locking the translation. It will never be revised. 
Well, scholars like Grudem come out and be like, well, what if you find a better manuscript and that word is more correct? So they, they would, would do that and say, okay, we're going to try to preserve it as it is, but you're right if we find a better old manuscript and realize that word is better to say, we'll fix it. So, there's even been, so just realize there's kind of controversy going on. So enough technicalities on that. Why do we have different Bible translations? Because there's differing philosophies. And so I'm not saying get rid of your NIV. I'm not saying get rid of your New Living Translation. There's nothing wrong with having this. Just know what they're designed to do. You can go to NIV or New Living, and perhaps it'll help open your eyes to the big picture message of a text. That's great. Use it for that. But make sure you understand what you're using it for in the limitation, and don't base everything off it because there's so much interpretive elements added to it. But even when I preach, you're getting interpretation. You just got my interpretation of how Bible translations should be done. You know, so there's, there's obviously bias in everything, right? So just realize that and use it for what it is and use it accordingly. So I'll get off that soapbox. I probably spent too much time on why do we have so many <coughs> translations. So that leads us to our third and final question for the night before we break up into groups for discussion. And that is the question of the next page. Why is it important to know how to interpret the Bible? And, and by the way, one last thing on Bible translation. If you need material to help you go to sleep at night, or if you're really curious about this, I'll be happy to show you my 20-something page paper about how our belief in verbal plenary inspiration impacts your Bible translation choice. And there's actually a, a long time ago I wrote that, but I'll spare you that unless you really, really want it. Okay, question three. Why is it important to interpret the Bible? The fundamental question is, what is interpretation? Interpretation is expressing the meaning of a document through speaking or writing. It happens all the time with works of history. It happens as we look at the Bible. It's simply expressing the meaning of something. And so when you translate the Bible, you can't help but do interpretation. Because you're trying to get a word from a different language into a new language. And your interpretation, your understanding of the meaning is going to shape what words you pick. The assumption of interpretation is that there is a meaning to what is written. So the fact that we even talk about Bible interpretation assumes it. It kind of presupposes that there is a meaning of the text. Not multiple meanings. And we'll get to this next week. One of the things that we should not do in Bible interpretation or small groups or Sunday school classes is like, what does this text mean to you? And we'll talk more about that next week. It's our tendency to do that. But the text has a meaning. I don't give the text a meaning. The author's going to give the text a meaning. God has given the text a meaning of what is written for us. And so the fact that we're interpreting assumes that there is a meaning of the document. And friends, we all do interpretation. We all do theology. It's not a matter of if I do this or not. We all do it. When someone says to you, I just don't understand how a loving God could send someone to hell, they're doing interpretation, they're doing theology. They're just doing it really poorly. You know, when someone says, hey, hey you, you can't tell me that. The Bible says do not judge. They're doing interpretation of a text, and they're doing theology, and they're doing it really poorly and really wrongly in that. We all do theology. We all do interpretation. When someone tries to point out something in Levitical law, you can't get a tattoo. You know, the Old Testament tells us that, you know, they're doing theology. They're doing interpretation. Everyone does theology. Everyone does interpretation. The question is, do we do it right? Do we do it well? And the word for how we do it, if you want your other big word to throw around on your lunch break tomorrow, it's the next word on your sheet, hermeneutics. I thought I was originally about calling this study a study of hermeneutics, but I figured that would scare everyone away, right? <laughs> what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is a Greek word, hermunion, which means to explain or to interpret. And so you'll hear people talk about, like, if you have, if you have like, some of your college students go off to seminary or Bible college, and they come back, they're like, you know, what class are you taking? Why are we taking New Testament theology? I'm taking hermeneutics. Hermana, what? You know, hermeneutics just means the principles. How do you explain? How do you interpret Scripture? And Jesus himself did hermeneutics interpretation. Look at Luke 24 there on your sheet. This is on the road to Emmaus. If you remember when the disciples are walking along and Jesus appears and they do not recognize him at first as they're walking along the way. Here's what the text says in Luke. 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus did hermeneutics. Jesus did interpretation. Jesus did it right. Obviously, he can't mess this one up. He's God. But he did interpretation. He did the explaining of the scriptures. And starting with Moses and the prophets, he showed them how to understand, how to interpret the scriptures as he did that. And again, the issue is not do we do, do, we do interpretation, is do we do it well? You know, the scripture warns us that we can not do it well. If you go back into 2 Timothy, I don't have it on your sheet, but 2 Timothy chapter 4, it warns about in the latter days, people will gather for themselves teachers who will do what? Tickle their ears. The scripture tells us that in the latter days, there will be pastors and teachers who are going to do bad interpretation of scripture to tickle people's ears. And there's other texts we can go to in that, but so we all do interpretation, just are we doing it right or doing it poorly? And so over the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at how to do it well in our devotional life, in our conversations with our friends. How do we properly handle this word of truth? And so next week, we're going to pick up with what we don't do and what we do. But to end tonight, before we go to a discussion time, I want to end with this question. Why is it important to know how to interpret the Bible? Again, most people look at this and you talk about hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. People's eyes kind of glaze over like, oh, you know, it sounds like a theological topic. You know, why is this important? But this is important because this affects our ability to worship God. We have to know how to rightly interpret Scripture if we want to properly worship God. Any of you familiar with the Westminster Catechism? Westminster Catechism. Catechism, if you're not familiar with that word, a catechism is just a series of questions and answers to teach. And they have catechisms for kids now. There's all sorts of things you get. But the Westminster Catechism is from the 1600s. And it has a series of questions. Their shorter one, their abbreviated one, begins with this question. Your question one of the catechism, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what, what is the, let me do a dynamic translation for you this. What is the purpose of mankind on the planet? You know, why, why are we here would be a translation of that. The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why God made us. It's not about us. It's about us glorifying God and us finding joy in his presence in the process. For us to glorify God, for us to enjoy God, we have to know who God is. We can't glorify one if we don't know him for who he is. We can't enjoy him if we don't know who he is. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us so that we might worship and enjoy him in the pages of Scripture. And so if we want to know God, if we want to enjoy him, we have to know him as he has chosen to reveal himself to us. In Scripture, You see on your handout there, John chapter 4, verse 24. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in what? In truth. If we want to worship God, we must know the truth of who he is. And where has God shown us the truth of who he is? The Bible. So we have to make sure we're rightly interpreting it, rightly understanding it as we do it. But our last one tonight, as far as a pastor, I want you to see as we kind of wrap this up, is Psalm 86. And see how this brings it together, how the Bible is going to show us our ability to worship God and enjoy him. And I've kind of already hinted at you. I've kind of given you an old cheat sheet because I've put some things in bold on Psalm 86 for you. But listen along to Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servants. There's the enjoyment of God. Glad in the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you. For you answer me. 
There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. This whole thing, if you want something to meditate on, the greatness of God just permeates this whole psalm. But notice that in verse 4, the psalmist here, David, is wanting his heart to be glad in the Lord. He wants to see the Lord's name glorified. But I love verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, God, you are great. You do wondrous things. You alone are God. There's the worship. And what's the worship ground in? Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Friends, how do we learn? How are we taught the truth of who God is? The word of God. The scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is all breathed out by God. It is profitable for us for our teaching, for our correction, so that we walk in righteousness before him. We can walk in truth and we might glorify him. So, friends, as we begin this study over these months of how to interpret the Bible, how to understand the Bible, realize this is not an academic exercise. This is not just a thing that we might do for some intellectual reason. We are pursuing this so that we might know better who God is through the revelation he's given to us so that we might worship him, not only worship with our song, that's part, but worship him with our lives of obedience in Romans 12. That we might obey him better, know him better, see him in his glory, and respond and worship with a life of worship because he is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. We are doing this so that we might worship God, not so we can be like, well, I better understand how to argue that with my friend now. This is not about winning arguments. This is not about being able to have a one-up on other people. This is about us being able to, know, to rightly study his word so that we might know him for who he is. So that's what I'm excited about the next few months. One thing we're going to do pretty much probably every evening as we gather on this is teach about what I've taught the length of time so far, probably about 30, 45 minutes. Then once the break, we'll spend about 20 to 30 minutes in small groups to have a chance to talk about this, to have a chance to talk about these principles. When we get into the, the latter on in a few weeks in different genres, we'll actually give you a text and let you in a group together wrestle with a text and applying what we talk about of principles of interpreting the different genres. But tonight I have some big picture questions for you. So we're going to divide into groups in just a minute, but let me talk you through the questions. So turn to your last page of your handout. And I want us to get into groups of probably you know, eight or ten or so, so you have time to talk. But here's some questions. If you get to all these, great. If you don't get to them, you can talk about them when you get home later tonight with your friends or your spouse. But question one, would we pay more attention if God spoke in an audible voice from heaven than when we read his written words to us? Friends, that convicts me. That's why I put it in there, because I need to think about that one. If God spoke to me and said, Grady, here's my plan for Gateway Baptist Church, and here's my plan for you. Can I get my tablet out and make sure I write all this down? Can I record it? You know. But God has chosen to reveal to us his will, his plan in the pages of Scripture. It's his breathed out words to us. So will we pay more attention if he actually spoke audibly than what he's given to us? And then the follow-up question, will we be more willing to obey his audible words? Why or why not? And what does our answer reveal about our beliefs about the Bible? Same question. In seeking to understand God's will for your life, what is the role of Scripture? Over the years, I probably have more questions of people popping into my office. Hey, how do I know where to go to college? Is she the one I should marry? I mean, these questions about God's will. What is the role of Scripture in understanding and answering those questions? But then the third question, does the sufficiency of Scripture we talked about tonight mean that the Bible will show us exactly what decision to make each time, where to go to school, who to marry, which doctor to use, etc.? If not, what does the sufficiency of Scripture mean? What does that practically look like for our lives? Question four, we believe in the clarity of Scripture. Why, then, is there so much disagreement among Christians about what particular passage of the Bible mean? 
We'll walk around. I want to hear some of your answers on that one. You can tell me what you think on that. <laughs> Number five, how is interpreting the Bible different than interpreting other works of literature? And lastly, if you have time to talk about it, great. If not, think about this one. Do you have confidence that you can properly understand passages of the Bible as well as the overall message of the Bible? If so, what is the basis of your confidence? And if not, what could change so you could feel confident to do so? So when your friend says, hey, I don't get this text, you're not like, <gasps> you know. Are you also not like kind of like proud and like, oh, yeah, I got this one. I found this one, you know. What is, how can we be confident, but what is the proper basis of our confidence as we approach the Scriptures? So we got about 25 minutes to tackle those. So if you divide yourself up into groups of about 8 or 10 or so with the people around you and have fun with them. I'm going, to listen, I'm going to enjoy walking around and listening to some of what you have to say. And if you have questions about any of those, just let me know. God bless you.